All right, so can we gather gather together? So now we're going to move on to the unofficial uh, formulary, Anglican formulary, and that is the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Um, brief history, uh, a man by the name of Huntington, um, I can't think of his first name, anyway, uh, wrote a book on Christian unity uh, in the 1800s, and uh, he was an Episcopalian, and he, he believed that essentially that um, the once undivided Catholic Church could reunite if those who had done away with some of the most important aspects of what it is to be part of that Catholic Church could embrace them anew, and if those who have added to the Catholic faith could um, uh, accept unity based on just the essentials and not the things that have been added. So he came up with um, basically uh, four essentials, uh, the, the first being um, the Old and New Testament, as the Word of God, uh, containing all things necessary and sufficient for salvation. You won't argue that And uh, secondly, the uh, Nicene Creed uh, and the Apostles' Creed as being, um, uh, you know, the essential doctrine, dogma of the church. Uh, well, you know, actually, I, I, I think it was included uh, in his first version, but it, it yeah, it wasn't. Um, and uh, then the, I don't think he got into the whole filioque thing at all. And then uh, to accept the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, using the words of Christ, meaning, you know, with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and then take, eat, this, it, and the elements ordained by Christ. That is, you, you have to use water, you have to use bread and wine. Okay, you can't use rose petals instead of water, which was a movement back in the 30s, I believe. Uh, and uh, and you know you can't use cookies and Pepsi or something. But you could right? use regular bread. Yeah, you can use even, yeah. Even if it was uh, raised. Yeah, I mean I don't know if he got into that, but that's always been the case in the East. They view the East uses yeast. Um, they get a rise out of it. Um, <laughs> um, Oh, <laughs> that fell flat. She said, "That's pretty good." Um, and the fourth is the historic episcopate, uh, locally adapted. So basically, the idea of having you know bishops who are in the historic line. Yeah, basically, yep. And essentially, his point was: Look, it's not that we won't still have some differences. But these are really the four things that united the church when it was one. Wherever it was in the world, it had one canon of Scripture. So let's agree on the authority and primacy of Scripture, 
and that uh, everything necessary for salvation is in it. Secondly, it had one faith, and that's been given voice in the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, so let's embrace that. Thirdly, it had one sacramental life. So, in, you know, particularly with an emphasis on the two that are necessary for salvation, baptism and Holy Eucharist. And then lastly, it had one ordained ministry, which was grounded in the episcopate, and that is the, the office of bishop. So if we can go back to that and have full communion based on that, then we can argue everything else out till the second coming of Jesus. But at least we'll be united in the one canon of Scripture, the one faith of the church, the one sacramental life of the church, and the one ordained ministry of the church. Can you, in a very short sentence or two, explain why the episcopate is so important? I will later in the course. Uh, there's no way to do it in a sentence or two. <laughs> um, but um, That's one of the things that my Lutheran friends tell me, oh, that's not Yes, it is. And, uh, and, you know, and I would say that actually, it, you know, it, it was clearer uh, um, as part of just the natural life of the church. And uh, even before the canon of scripture and the sacraments and the, uh, not the sacraments, the canon of scripture and the creeds and, yeah. and all of that. Uh, but we will, we will get into all, all of that. Well, but this is for us to have communion with other churches. This is what we would agree on. The others are about us as Anglicans. This is, this is reaching out to the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and saying, let's be one based on this. So it's not that you have to accept the Pope, or it's not that you have to accept predestination, or that your clergy have to be celibate, or that the Mass is in Latin, or any of that. It's based on the fact that we will unite and be in full communion with each other over in that we will once again have one ministry, one sacramental life, one creedal faith, one canon of scripture. Then the rest we can duke it out over the centuries, but we'll do it as one family of God. Karen and then Bob? No? So I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Yes, but not as he thought it would. But I'll get to that. When you say the historic episcopate, according to the local, uh, what did you say? The local Locally adapted. So, you know, just how much authority... Which means that you can call one of those bishops a pope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever the administration you go with, but at least it would be the episcopacy, yeah. Because the pope is nothing more or less than a bishop. Than a bishop. That's all. Yeah. yeah. So he would be included in that. Yeah. Bob? This is, this is a very generous offer uh, because basically it says if you become Anglican, <laughs> we'll all be fine. Yeah. Well, in some ways, <laughs> there's some truth to that. Isn't that true? But, but, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's like when I buried my father. When I was at his grave, I, I started out by saying all my life, my father for 70 uh, years, 70, almost 71 years, was a Roman Catholic. Of course, he's dead, so he's Anglican now. But, uh, <laughs> um, but in some ways, he would argue that 
it's only Anglicanism because Anglicanism is based on mere Christianity and that it really is a call to the rest of the Catholic world and Protestants not to embrace Anglicanism but to embrace the principle that we've been following and that is that the, the differences are secondary. What matters is that we reunite the church on the, the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided church under the authority of scripture. But yeah, no, it's true. So did it work? Good question. Um, interestingly enough, there's uh, two in India, there are two churches, the Church of South India, the Church of North India, that have come together, bringing together multiple denominations, and, it, and they're now full members of the Anglican Communion, and this coming together of these different denominations and traditions, Anglican, maybe Methodist, Presbyterian, I forget who else was in it, um, but anyway, was based on the Lambeth Quadrilateral. So it was successful to a greater or lesser degree in India, in both the Church of Northern India, or the Church of North India, is that how you say it? And the Church of South India. So, uh, and they are members of Anglicanism, and it's based on, on those things. Uh, as far as bringing together um, divided Catholicism and other Protestants outside of that one situation, it didn't. I actually tried the same thing. I did an experiment when I was in seminary uh, with all these different denominations, and I was supposed to present an ecumenical argument. And so I did, and you know, to, for unity, and I, and, um, and I put this out, and the class erupted into an argument. I mean, the, the, the Protestants were like, four? You want us to agree on four things, including the episcopacy? No way. And then the Baptists, the more evangelicals, were like, baptism, what do you mean? Do you, are you saying it's necessary for salvation? Because it's not. What, the Baptists? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Baptists don't believe that, that God's grace is conveyed through baptism. They don't believe anything happens in baptism. It's a symbolic public witness of what God has done within you spiritually. Baptism does not convey. It's not a sacrament. It's an ordinance. It does not does not convey grace. It's symbolic, just like Holy Communion is. It's not the body and blood of Christ. Why do they insist on the doing their form? I ask my mother-in-law that all the time. It's just because Jesus told us to do it. It's an ordinance, which means command. But apparently, he commanded it for no real reason. <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, so the Protestants were saying four, you want us to agree to four, and the, and the more extreme evangelicals were saying, well, what do you mean by baptism and the Lord's Supper? Do we have to believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist? And the Roman Catholics said, four, only four? What are you, crazy? And the two Orthodox people in the class were saying, come home to mother, come home to mother. <laughs> and so in the end, the professor, you know, told us all to be quiet and to calm down, and he said, look, I guess this shows that the only thing we can all agree on in this room is the man Jesus. And people started to nod their head, and I raised my hand, and I said, I can't agree to that at all. I don't know what you mean by the man Jesus. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, no, I, I deny that. If it's a Jesus, apart from being fully God, fully man, one person in two natures, the two natures neither being confused nor divided, then I cannot agree with that statement. 
class dismissed. Michael dismissed. Get out of here. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so anyway, um, it hasn't really had that much of an impact, uh, sadly. Um, but I, I, I like the idea. Because to me, what if, just take for example right now, what if Roman Catholicism, which is the biggest church in the world, Eastern Orthodoxy, which is the second biggest, Anglicanism, which is the third biggest, and Lutherans, and maybe let's say some, some Methodists, and maybe some high church Presbyterians, could all agree on those things. And we'll say, look, we'll be in full communion with one another. We wouldn't be threatened over who's valid and illicit or valid but irregular because there would be one ministry. Now, uh, there would be one sacramental life, right? There would be one canon of scripture, one creedal faith. So we would at least be, even if we were still in different pews, we'd be really in the same church. And then we could argue over papal infallibility, purgatory, transubstantiation, uh, free will, blah, 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 until the second coming of Christ. But we would be united and think of the witness to the world. But unfortunately, um, it hasn't worked. So I'm going to read from, um, so it was first passed by the Episcopal Church and known as the Chicago uh, Quadrilateral. And, um, and then uh, later was accepted at Lambeth to represent our, our reaching out to other churches as the Anglican Communion. And when was that? Did you already say? 1888, I think it was accepted at Lambeth. So here's the quote that goes before it. Furthermore, well, wait a minute. Are we... Okay. Furthermore, This was the Episcopal Church speaking at the time. I get a kick out of reading it now. Furthermore, we do hereby affirm that the Christian unity can be restored only by the return of all Christian communions to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church during the first ages of its existence. In other words, if we want to answer the prayer of our Lord that we all be one, The only thing we can do is not by Rome surrendering to Anglicanism or our being absorbed by Rome. It's basically all of us need to return to when we were one in an agreement. Okay, So the Christian unity can be restored only by the return of all Christian communions to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church during the first ages of its existence. Is everyone with me? By the way, that's, if one line summarizes my theology, it's that one right there. Um, which principles, so these principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church, big C, which principles we believe, we Anglicans, we Episcopalians, we believe to be the substantial deposit of Christian faith and order. So this is, this is the sub- substantial deposit of faith and order. Okay, order is how we live out the church, bishops, priests, and deacons, and then the faith is like the creed and the sacraments, okay? Committed by Christ and his apostles to the church, so Christ who is God, to the apostles, to the church, unto the end of the world, not until the next general convention, not until we want to appease the Lutherans, Not until unto the end of the world. 
So there's one canon of scripture, one sacramental life, one creedal faith, one ordained ministry, and this is the substantial deposit of faith and order given to the church coming down from Christ and the apostles and must exist until the end of the world. And therefore, incapable of compromise or surrender by those who have been ordained to be its stewards and trustees for the common and equal benefit of all men. Incapable of compromise. Well, I was at the General Convention and on the floor of General Convention at the General Convention when in order to establish full communion with the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, they, they, read, they read this and I remember the guy getting up there for the motion. Um, and therefore, incapable of compromise or surrender by those who have been ordained to be its stewards and trustees for the common and equal benefit of all men, you know, and unto the end of the world. I move that we suspend this temporarily so to enter into full communion with the Lutherans. And everyone, hey, that sounds like a nice idea. They're nice people. All in favor? Aye. All opposed? Me. <laughs> Pass. Boom. Bang. All right, now that we have that, all in favor of putting it back to being uncompromisable and never surrender, all in favor say, aye, aye, oppose them. Like, are you nuts? <laughs> well, well, it's not, it's not that I have a problem with the Lutherans. It's that we had to, we said this is uncompromisable, and then we compromised. We said we have to suspend this in order to enter into agreement because the Lutherans did not embrace the apostolic succession, nor do they embrace the threefold order of ministry, bishop, priest, and deacon. They just have pastors. Deacons are laity. They're not ordained. They have pastors, and some pastors are elected for an office time for like five years to be a bishop. Also, they have lay, lay persons can be authorized by a pastor who's in the office of bishop for a time to preside at the Holy Eucharist. And they also believe that while Christ is present in the Eucharist, it's only in the context of the liturgy. So once the service is over, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> okay, Jesus has left the Eucharist. So while I have a great appreciation for the Lutheran tradition, and really believe that on the Protestant side, they are by far the closest to us, maybe Orthodox Methodists, but, but Lutherans. And while I long for the day that we can agree to all of this and speak with one heart, mind, and voice, um, I, you know, I don't think we can turn a blind eye and, you know, to what we say we can't surrender or compromise. You know? Yes, because they have the apostolic succession. Their bishops were ordained by bishops going all the way back. And that's why we're not in full communion with the church, Lutheran Church in Germany, because they don't. They haven't maintained, maintained that. The idea, I mean, I'm simplifying a bit to be fair to the other side, although I strongly disagreed. I wasn't the only one who voted against it, by the way. Um, um, I told the person next to me, do you want a Reese's peanut butter cup? Yeah. <laughs> Vote against the Lutherans. Um, uh, what they said is, look, the Lutherans 
um, don't want to um, accept the apostolic succession because they say they've been without it for you know 500 years and da 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 da, and so and they don't want it to imply that somehow their ministry is lacking something, okay? And by saying that they have to receive it now, the agreement was that all Lutheran bishops from then on would have to be consecrated not only by three Lutherans, but by three Anglican bishops as well, so that they would be in the apostolic succession, and that when they were done with their office, they were still considered bishops and able to ordain. And eventually, though, you keep changing the office. So I'm trying to find a Lutheran pastor who's not a bishop, you know. But they said, we'll deal with that later. And so they had to accept that all of their bishops would, from then on, be in apostolic succession. In turn, anyone they ordained would be then in apostolic succession. The down part of that is that they didn't have the threefold order of ministry, and so deacons weren't considered ordained. And so to me, there was still work to be done in the dialogue. But they had, so the, the compromise for them was that they had to accept that all future bishops had to be ordained not only by Lutheran bishops that are, but by three in the apostolic succession. In turn, people like me would have to immediately accept all the pastors who have already been ordained as priests. Um, and what I would say is, look, are they priests? When they consecrate, is Christ present? I leave that to God. I can only testify and bear witness to what I have received. And there's nothing in scripture or tradition that says that when someone is ordained outside the apostolic succession, outside the laying on of hands of the Spirit, that they are. So I'm not going to say they're invalid, but I'm not going to say, oh, it's okay too, you know? And so the compromise on our side is that people like me would have to accept them, you know, as, as priests, even though they're not in the apostolic succession. And then the thought was that these people are angry because they have to be in it for a while because it implies something that they're somehow not quite right. And I'm angry over here and have to accept it because, you, you know, when I'm teaching on apostolic succession, I say how important it is, but then I say, yeah, but not really because you know, this Lutheran now can come and replace me here. I can move on to another church and Lutheran pastor who's not in apostolic succession. So then how important are we saying that it is? But the idea was, even though Michael's a little upset and even though Pastor Tom over here is a little upset, in about 50 years, they'll both be dead. And by then, the ELCA will be fully in the apostolic succession and then they won't be threatened by it anymore because... Once you have something, you're, you're not threatened by not having it, you, you know. And then these people won't have to worry. The Michaels won't have to worry because um, everyone is in apostolic succession who's alive now. All the ones who weren't are dead. So, it, you know, it, it all works out and it's for the sake of unity. So, Michael, just turn a blind eye for 50 years. You'll be dead soon. And, and <laughs> that was the idea. But, of course, immediately... There were Lutherans who refused to um, uh, be consecrated bishops by those with in the apostolic succession, and the, you know, and it was so. You know, of course, people because why they didn't do the hard work of really coming to agreement, and you know, things tend to break down when you kind of say, "Let's do a fly by night thing." You know, now those who worked on it probably wouldn't say it was fly by night; probably years of of working, but to me, we weren't we weren't there.
and uh, unfortunately it broke down and that and a few other things led to a big split in the um, ELCA but now there's a group that has left the ELCA who um, are probably going to come into full communion with the ACNA to which we belong and be in the apostolic succession. So God works all things for good in the hearts of those who love him. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't have to turn a blind eye either. A blind eye? You're going to have to poke me in both of them. I'm going to, you know, and tape my mouth too. Um, and, and ultimately, while we've never unchurched those who aren't in apostolic succession, we've also never came right out and said, you can live without it either. We've said, to be in communion with us, you have to have it. And to me, by suspending it, even for a period of time, we are clearly saying that while it's important, it really isn't essential to the deposit of the early church. And I, I, can't, I can't say that. I'm willing to not judge those who are outside of it. But I can't say that it, it's not part of what has come down to us from the time of Christ and the apostles, because it has. So if Bob was run over by a bus and he said, Father Michael, I'm really not sure if I have to believe you're part of the apostolic Hell. Hell, you don't even have to finish the sentence. Hell, no, no, I'm kidding. No, 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 because that's the order of the church. What one has to believe in is the faith of, of, of the church. That's the order of the church. But is it a, a substantial deposit of order that's come down to us from Christ? Is it Christ's intent to have this one ordained ministry of the church? I'd answer yes. Now, what happens when you remove yourself from that and set up? I don't know. But I'll give you the example of when, when Father Terence, who was ordained a Catholic priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church, was becoming Anglican. He wanted to live out his priesthood in Anglicanism. He was not ordained by our bishop because he's already a priest of the Catholic Church. He, his orders, his Catholic orders, were received into this branch of Christ's Holy Catholic Church. When Michael Bickford, who was a congregational minister for 15 years, wanted to live out his ministry now in Anglicanism, he had to be ordained a deacon and then a priest. We didn't say, Michael, what you were before is invalid, illicit. We just say, we, we make no judgment on that. We don't speak to that. Minister of the gospel, we're sure God's grace worked through you. But this is what we know. And so you have same thing if Praveen is coming into Anglicanism from the Roman Catholic Church and was confirmed by the Roman Catholics, and let's say Bob is coming from the Eastern Orthodox Church and was chrismated by the Eastern Orthodox, and they're coming in, they are not confirmed by our bishop. They are received into this branch of Christ's Holy Catholic Church. But if you come from the Lutheran Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church or the Congregational Church, and you want to become an Anglican, you'll be confirmed by the bishop. Are bishops received into the church, or are they not? How do you can, mean? Can if, me I'm an example. Bishop, if I'm a if I'm a Roman Catholic bishop, and I come to you and say I want to be... Uh, oh, you'd be received as a bishop. You would as be... As a bishop or as a priest? No, you, you'd be into Anglicanism or going the other way? Into no, Anglicanism? Anglicanism. You, you're a bishop because it's Catholic orders. We, there's no way to unbishop you. So you're a bishop. We might say to someone, we, we don't think you're sound or whatever, and so you can become an Anglican, but we're not going to allow you to function as a bishop, bishop. But you are a bishop, bishop. But you're in the house of bishops. Then. 
No, not unless you're, you're licensed to function as a bishop. Oh. Yeah, but we'd recognize you as a, as a bishop. But you'd have to find a, a diocesan bishop who would license you to function or get a diocese to elect you to be their diocesan bishop. But you wouldn't be reordained. You would just be installed as their bishop because you're already a bishop. Okay. Um, so this Lambda quadrilateral, it seems like the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican or Episcopal Church, actually Anglican. Yeah. Right. What would be the difference between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Anglican way? Um, for, it, it's a little bit easier to say the difference between Rome and us than it is. In, in some ways, um, the faith and order and ex liturgical expression of many Anglicans is almost identical to that of the Eastern Orthodox Church. They, they would say we have a, a few problems, however, from their per perspective. Um, one is that um, uh, just take the, um, the number of ecumenical councils. For them, we have a hierarchy within the seven ecumenical councils. We put a great emphasis on the first four um, and say that the latter three are, is a working out of the incarnational theology of the first four. They would say seven period, Re you know, receive them all. Now that's what they say to us. What's interesting is in some dialogue with uh, the non-Chalcedonian Orthodox Church, they said they had to receive the essential doctrine of those council, latter councils, but they didn't have to accept them word word for word in all, you know in the canons and so forth. With us, they they say you know you you must. So that that is a kind of a bit of a problem. Um, uh, also, they, they would be concerned about any low church understanding of the sacrament. Um, and any Anglicans who are really Baptists or Presbyterians in Anglican clothing, they would think, well, why doesn't the, it, let's say they were a priest, the, they would say, well, the bishop should remove them if they can't clearly state, you know, the doctrine of the church. Um, where, you know, we tend to, you know, not do, you know, not do that. Um, um, uh, but having said all that, in 1930, um, the um, Patriarch of Constantinople recognized the validity of Anglican orders and said that we were, we were valid. In Eastern Orthodoxy, however, it's not like if the Pope makes a statement, everyone has to believe it. In Eastern Orthodoxy, things have to be received by the whole church. So each autocephalous, um, in each autonomous local church, like the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Serbians, had to accept that decree. And it began to make its way around that Anglican orders were, were, were valid. Then um, what happened was a couple of those things interrupted that, um, like it was tough for the, Soviet, the Russian church to address this because of the Soviet Union um, and different other problems. So 
it ended up being that it was recognized by Constantinople and that certainly carried a lot of weight, but it wasn't something that was received by the whole Church of Orthodoxy yet, though it seemed to be leaning that way. Sergei Bolkov um, uh, actually wrote in, in the 1930s a book called The Orthodox Church and said that you know he believed soon that uh, the Orthodox and Anglicans would, would be one, you know, one church. Um, and, uh, but some things in history kind of slowed that down. Um, some of the more lower church Anglicans were very afraid of communion with the Orthodox because of their, what they think is idol worship of the icons and so forth. That's okay. Uh, of the icons and kissing icons. And because the Seventh Council mandates that you must reverence the icons, we would say we accept the theology that icons are incarnational when properly understood. They are not contrary to the gospel, and certainly people can have it, and it can be used in a proper way. But we, you know, we're not going to mandate that people kiss them. Um, now, I think you all should kiss them, but I'm not going to mandate it, at least today. Um, and um, so there were some of those things to work out, but essentially we were doing really well um, until... 1976, uh, when um, Anglicanism in our dialogue with Eastern Orthodoxy has always said, look, unlike Rome, we have not added to the faith and order of the undivided church. Unlike most of our Protestant uh, brothers and sisters, we have not deleted from the faith and order of the undivided church. Um, the principle of the English Reformation is to return us to the, the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the authority of Scripture. A little bit different, and for them, Scripture is part of tradition, and within that, it, it holds the, the most important place, but it's not clearly subject to Scripture, but, so it's a, that would have to be worked out too. But anyway, we've always made the argument that, you know, we we are truly the Orthodox Church in the West. Um, we're out of communion with you uh, by an accident of history, but we are, um, we are the Orthodox Church in the West. And, um, and they were basing their talks with us on that. In 1976, however, the Episcopal General Convention decided to um, ordain women as priests and bishops. And the Orthodox immediately said, well, wait a minute. If you don't have an ordained ministry of your own, you have the ordained ministry of the undivided church, um, then you don't have the authority unilaterally to make such a change. You're either the Orthodox Church in the West or you're just a Protestant church. Which are you? Are you going to make unilateral decisions because you claimed you've never done that? Or are you going to start making them? And they and, you know, they said, women deacons, not that big of a deal. Uh, we accept that the Bible leans that way and that the early church had them. So we, we can live with that, but not the priests and deacons thing. That would have to be something dis discerned by the greater church, not by you alone. If you're Catholic, you won't make changes to the substantial deposit alone. If you're Protestant, you will. So which art thou? <laughs> uh, and we said, yeah, right. And so, and, you know, and that's why there's people like me who would say, you know, um, my biggest problem with the ordination of women as priests and bishops is the ecclesiological problem, that do we have the authority, the church, 
do we have the authority as one branch of the church to make a unilateral decision. But anyway, since then, um, uh, the dialogue with the Orthodox has been greatly strained. And then when the Episcopal Church started doing all the other stuff, they cut it off completely. Now, thanks be to God, with the formation of our movement in the province, the ACNA, the Orthodox Church has opened up official dialogue again uh, with us. With the ACNA? With the ACNA, correct. Not, not with the Anglican there, there, there is stuff with the Anglican Communion worldwide, but there's none directly with the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church in Canada. That's been completely cut off. <laughs> the dog. <laughs> Would you give them if, if they if, if they want it, yes. Uh, if if they come and talk to me about it, if, let's say a Roman Catholic comes to me and says, uh, "Look, um, uh, I understand that you're in the Apostolic Succession. Yes, I believe that with all my heart. Uh, you need to know, however, that your church says uh, no." Um, your church would say that you should not receive outside of Rome. Uh, however, if you understand that and you believe it's the body and blood of Christ and um, you have repented of your sins, um, then I will not refuse you the sacrament. But you should go into it with your, your eyes open. Just as when I have people come to me and say, oh, you know, I'm Roman Catholic and he's Roman Catholic and we want to get married, but... You, you know, I don't want to go through an annulment because, you know, my first husband beat me and I don't want to go through all that again and da-da-da. So we still need an annulment. You, I mean, or you still need permission from the bishop to remarry, but it is simply you won't have to relive that. We'll take your testimony and you at your word and the bishop will, you know, likely grant it. Um, uh, and then I say, but however, you need to realize that by getting married, we, we recognize that you are married. Rome will not. You need to know that if you ever want to go back to the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to have to confess the sin of your union and having come to us. So I said, you're welcome to worship in this branch of Christ's holy Catholic Church. Um, but you need to know that you are, in a sense, excommunicating yourself from the Church of Rome. So as long as you know what you're doing, you know, you're, you're, welcome, you know, you're welcome to do it. So yes, we will give them because they believe it's the body, they've been baptized, they believe it's the body and blood of Christ, they're receiving in faith. Um, hopefully they've confessed their sins and asked for forgiveness. So anyone, anyone who's baptized who believes it's the body and blood of Jesus and who has repented of their sins can receive um, the, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Blessed Sacrament. You mentioned the restriction with the Roman Catholics just now. What about with the Orthodox? Are there any restrictions with the yes. Orthodox? Yes, the, the Orthodox will not let us receive. But it used to be that they would say to their people with a, you know, a wink and a, and a nod, if you are moving to the Americas and there's no Orthodox Church, go to the Anglicans and receive the sacraments. And that was kind of the unofficial practice of many Orthodox throughout the world is that they would go to the Anglican Church. That again started to come to an end, that practice with the unilateral decision-making of the Episcopal Church. 
I mean, that's why my big issue, I think Anglicanism is great. I mean, what it has to offer, it's biblical Catholicism, it's patristic, it's under scripture, but we have to hold to the fact that we can't make unilateral decisions. And I always use that example, that if Bob and Praveen and I um, go in on a cottage uh, uh, on a lake somewhere, um, it's not true that I own a third, Bob owns a third, and Praveen owns a third. Um, like I own the bedrooms, Praveen owns the kitchen, and you know Bob owns the living room in this little cottage. The fact is that I own the cottage, he owns the cottage, and he owns the cottage 100%. And so it's the same idea that if the ordained ministry does not belong exclusively to Anglicanism, then we are, we are not, we're not free to change that. Um, and so in this scenario, in this analogy, if um, uh, Emily comes along and she's selling wood-burning stoves and says, you need to take out that beautiful fieldstone fireplace and put in this new efficient wood-burning stove because we know much better now than they used to about heating a place. And these new ones are far superior to the old way of thinking. And you need to take it out and put it, even if she's right. If I say, okay, guys, I think we should do it, and they say, no, we love the antiquity of the old fieldstone fireplace. We don't want to do that. Um, and I do it anyway, and I sign for it, and the fieldstone fireplace is ripped out in this new efficient wood-burning stove, which probably will heat the place way better, is put in, even if I'm right that it's more efficient, da, 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 da. what have I done to the covenant between us? I've destroyed it, right? And what I'm really saying is that I can make unilateral decisions, and I'm not, I don't need to take you into account, which is not the word Catholic. And so my argument has always been that, um, my primary argument is that we don't have the authority to act unilaterally. And that if you act unilaterally once, it's easy to do, do it a second time. Prior to accepting Lambda, do you know if the Church of South India and North India had apostolic succession? Only the Anglicans that were there. They didn't exist. They were coming together based on the Lambeth Quadrilateral. And it was like Methodists, um, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Anglicans. So, when they accept, how come all of a sudden you can be in communion with them? Because, you know, you don't recognize their, their, their clergy. Well, but the, no, they are, they're all ordained in the apostolic succession because they accepted the Lambeth Quadrilateral. And what they did was, is they all, all the bishops of all the different churches um, all laid hands on each other. Um, and, you know, that was the nice way of doing it. But it was done specifically so that the apostolic succession would be created in the church. Yes. In the way that we've been explaining it. Yes. Someone who was already in the apostolic Correct. Correct. They yeah. just, you know. Right. 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 Yeah, no, the prayer of consecration was said, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So, and that, and, you know, so that's a good example of where, you know, where it worked. But, okay. So, as inherent parts of this sacred deposit, inherent, 
and therefore as essential to the restoration of unity among the divided branches of Christendom, we account the following. That in the opinion of this conference, the following articles supply a basis on which approach may be, by God's blessing, made towards home reunion. Not Rome reunion, home reunion. Okay. Home reunion. That is, the, un the once undivided Catholic Church being reunited. A, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as containing all things necessary to salvation and being the rule and ultimate standard of faith. Two, the Apostles' Creed as the baptismal symbol and the Nicene Creed as the sufficient uh, statement of the Christian faith. The two sacraments ordained by Christ himself, baptism and the supper of the Lord, ministered with unfailing use of Christ's words of institution and the elements ordained by him. That is water, not flowers, you know, not Coke and Pepsi, bread and wine. The historic episcopate locally adapted in the methods of its administration to the varying needs of the nations and peoples called of God into the unity of his church. And that that would be the basis. But notice... Since today's, the whole class is, where do the Anglican formularies place Scripture? Scripture there is first. Scripture there holds a place of primacy um, and is the rule and ultimate standard of faith. So this would be a united Catholic Christendom under the authority and primacy of the Bible as, uh, uh, as God's word. Karen? Yeah. You know, I make this argument all the time because people will say, well, what are we supposed to do when we're discerning things? Wait until we're reunited with Rome and, and Constantinople and have an ecumenical council before we can do anything? And my answer is yes, because it's in the context of unity and being in one accord as the family of God that the spirit flows most clearly. And, you know, the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. And so, and I really think that if we put as much effort into uniting the church as we do into dividing the church, we would probably be, I, I really believe that, um, I, I mean, I really believe this, that if the Episcopal Church had failed to innovate the first time and then the second, third, and fourth time, um, failed to innovate, that Anglicanism and Orthodoxy would be in full communion right now, and that the East and West would be reunited, not between Constantinople and Rome, but between Constantinople and Canterbury. And I think the witness then of that union would have brought Rome to the table with serious talks. And I think people like um, Pope John Paul II then, and especially this bishop, Benedict XVI, who has such an appreciation for the scriptures and the patristic witness. You know, and, and even right around those times, Pope Paul, who referred to subsequent so-called ecumenical councils of the Roman Church as general councils of the Roman Church, which isn't the same authority. I mean, all of that, I mean, the, the time was ripe for that. Um, and I, I think we threw it away uh, in order to exercise our authority. But, but we know that that was the 
And I say that all the time. Let's answer Jesus' prayer. Yeah, of course, some people think it will be answered after the second coming. That might be the point. But, I mean, I, I, I don't think we should give up on it. I mean, I really think that we, and this is, I think that the New Anglican Reformation needs to clearly ground itself in this, you know? That, that would also help out the Orthodox Church in the United States, especially, yeah. because you have, you have Greek Orthodox, you have Syrian Orthodox, yeah. and you have bishops upon bishops upon bishops. Right. And it would uh, simplify, simplify the, the, uh, the church. What about there's so many, um, I mean, kind of a Catholic, one that becomes Roman Catholic, right? It only seems like there's a lot because it's big in the papers. Um, but the, the numbers actually are, are, are very small. Um, of the whole movement that they thought was going to go in, the traditional Anglican communion, which claimed a half a million people throughout the world, um, very few of them actually ended up going. Um, and you hear very little about the fact that there was two South American Roman Catholic bishops who came into Anglicanism recently. And there was hardly any coverage on, on, on that. But I also think that for a long time, the Anglicans were under the agreement, that, or under the understanding, rather, that, that Rome was going to accept them uh, under their pastoral wing based on the, the faith of the undivided church. You know, kind of like an agreement they might try to work with the Eastern Orthodox type thing. And that, you know, our clergy still would be able to marry and we'd still be able to, you know, and we wouldn't have to, you know, give allegiance to things like papal infallibility or purgatory, but that it would be based on, you know, the seven ecumenical councils and the early church and, and all of that, and that we would hopefully be kind of a right, one of like the Eastern rites, the Ukrainian cat we would be the Anglican right. And it's nowhere near that. It's, and, and, and those who have gone, I think, are just fooling themselves. Within a generation, they will be absorbed. Absolutely absorbed. When the priests die, they can't be replaced by any married clergy who are coming up. They have to, and where are they going to be trained? In Roman seminaries. And, and it's a one-generation deal of absorption. And they're saying, no, the future of Anglicanism is here. And it, it, it's baffling to me, especially baffling when, when people who I admire with great intelligence do it, because I, I want to say, what? I, I mean, because it doesn't take much insight, I don't think, down the road to, no. to, you know, to see that. You know? and, um, it's not one generation. It's a couple of hours. Yeah. And ultimately, Rome with the way its authority structure is done. Let's say that this church, let's say that they were, now this wouldn't happen because I was Roman Catholic and you can't leave, get ordained and go back. But let's say that I got a waiver somehow. Um, and let's say, I'm going to bring Holy Trinity in uh, under Rome. Okay. And, uh, and so we don't really want anything to change. Our faith, okay, that's fine. Yeah, okay. The second we're Roman Catholic, the local Roman Catholic bishop can say to me, Michael, thank you. Bye. I'm sending in Father John. Yeah. You know, John Roman. 
guy dude. <laughs> and he's going to be the priest now. And I mean, and that's going to be it. And there wouldn't be a thing that, you know, what's the vestry going to do? <laughs> and it, even the vestry said, well, we're not going to pay the new priest. We're going to cut his pay. The bishop would say, pay him. If they said no, he'd lock the doors. And that would be the end of the church. Church would be closed. You know, so, yeah, it's a, yeah, so, but you don't hear much about the other way, you, you know. I mean, how many, um, you know, Roman Catholics have become Anglicans, you know, over, over the years? I mean, you know, um, you, you know, you don't hear that much. I mean, just for example, the, the, the people who were Anglican all of their life, kind of born into it, is, is the vast minority. Um, so uh, in this room, you were born into Anglicanism, right? And you were? No. So do you mind telling us where you came from? I was born a Congregationalist. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So one in one. Someone keep track. One in one. Were you born Anglican? Well, yeah, it's Anglican, right? Yeah, Anglican. So you were always, I thought you were Lutheran for a while. No, that was Dan? Is that, yes, Dan. Oh, okay. So she uh, always, so that's two to one. I was Roman, two to two. Three to two, we're winning. Four to two. All right, four, four to two. Five to two. Really? Seriously? Oh, okay. I thought you were born Roman. Six to two, and that's a big six. So, <laughs> whew! It's actually eight, eight to two. Is it? So I can't even count. Oh, because, oh, yeah, eight to two. So that's six to two. I mean, so that shows you, shows you right there. I uh, want to see another thing that, that's uh, particularly strange. Uh, if you were a member of this church eight years ago when I came, raise your hand. Wow. I mean, that says something, you know, as well, that we have, you know, not only a lot of people coming from outside, but a lot of people coming from elsewhere, you know, to join. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Ah. Diana is definitely she was in the wall, as we say. All right. Um, okay, so we're now going to turn to um, uh, the sixteen sixty two ordinal uh, and see in particular what it has to say regarding Holy Scripture. And so here is um, from the ordination or consecration of a bishop. The archbishop says to the priest about to be consecrated a bishop, Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain all doctrine required as necessary for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And are you determined out of the same Holy Scriptures to instruct the people committed to your charge and to teach or maintain nothing as necessary to eternal salvation, 
but that which you shall be persuaded may be concluded and proved by the same. That sounds like lawyers. Yeah. And then the, the bishop-to-be answers, What? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. When we were doing the liturgies based on the, on the old liturgies, when Deacon Susie was getting ordained, we were looking at 1662 and some of the older rites. And it says the answer to some of the vows was, I think so. Because back then, back then, what that means is, I think it to be. I think so. But really, that phrase has changed to, are you persuaded? That the, I, I think so. Yes? I mean, and so we just decided we could not do it. Because I'd start laughing, and because and Susie said, no matter how much she practiced, she would never get. She it would come out as I think so, <laughs> maybe <laughs> on a good day. So I think so. It, yeah, it's all good. It is funny how how things uh, change. You know, if if you read the ancient rites of the fathers they will say um, that the saints should be worshipped. And we say, <gasps> well, the word worship meant to venerate, to show respect. Adoration was for God. Worship was for the saints and other people. But when we read it today, someone says, oh, Father Michael, you told me to read the Seventh Ecumenical Council. It says that we should worship Mary. You're crazy, you, you know? So it used to be we adored God and we worshiped the saints. Now we adore puppies and little babies. Aren't they adorable? And we worship God. You, you see how things, you know, you say, oh, that puppy is adorable. Well, you went back in time. That's a word reserved from, you're, you'd basically be saying you're a Hindu then or something. You're going to worship this puppy, Right. It used to be that a man would say in the wedding ceremony to his wife that he would worship her all the days of his life. You know? I saw that little look like, hey. <laughs> like, don't you think that's a good idea, Paulina? <laughs> but, it would be different from normal <laughs> But, I mean, and so that shows, just like it used to be that if, if uh, you're a painter and, and go back a few centuries, she says, Father Michael, I'd like you to behold one of my latest pieces. And I go in and I would say, oh, it is awful. Because that meant full of awe. Now awful means terrible. But even terrible. I mean, has, has changed on that great and terrible day of the Lord's coming. Why is it so terrible? I mean, if he comes, shouldn't we rejoice? I mean, the word terrible. You know, if I say something is terrific, is that good or bad? It's good, but the traffic was terrific. Yes. It wasn't always a good thing, depending on the context. It's actually a Christmas song uh, about the traffic was terrific. And so, yeah, so words have, have changed greatly. So anyway, what this is saying is that, look, before you can be a bishop, a Catholic bishop, in this communion, 
you have to say publicly that you believe that the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God, um, contains everything that is necessary for someone to believe, and that you're not going to require anything of laity unless it's clearly biblical for their salvation. Okay, What is that statement making sure that although he's going to be ordained a Catholic bishop, that he's not a what? Yeah, that's what that's saying, that you are a Bible Catholic, that you are not a Roman Catholic. Because a Roman Catholic could never agree to that statement because there are things that they have to teach as necessary for salvation that are not biblical. Okay. So you see that the first thing that the bishop-to-be has to agree to is the authority and primacy of Scripture. Does that make sense to everyone? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You look puzzled, no? You with me? Okay. (laughs) She's she's still back on that thing. I like that idea. That's what I think so. Oh, did you? I think so. I think so. Okay. And so he answers, I am so persuaded and determined by God's grace. Okay. In other words, it's not just his will, uh, but by the grace of God. Will you then faithfully exercise yourself in the Holy Scriptures and call upon God by prayer for the true understanding of the same so that you may be able by them to teach and exhort with wholesome doctrine and to withstand and convince the gainsayers? Oh, that's what I, I'm always like. Listen, gainsayer. Um, so the first thing is that, yes, you're going to be ordained, to the Catholic Episcopacy. But you must put yourself and the church and the doctrine of the church and the faith and order under the primacy and authority of Scripture. The second one is that you're going to be a man of God's Word. You're going to counsel people based on God's Word. So you see the importance here from the formularies of God's Word? And then it says, the third vow, Are you ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away from the church all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word, and both privately and openly to call upon and encourage others to do the same. Now that one was a biggie, because that says that when Mary comes to the throne and says, you accept Roman Catholicism or I'm going to put you to death. You can't just privately continue to hold the true faith, the biblical Catholic faith. You have to publicly attempt to drive away from the Catholic Church in the realm of England all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word, not only privately but publicly. Um, I probably shouldn't say this on tape, but I I remember that... uh, Yeah, why don't you turn off for a (laughs) second? All right, just edit I trust you. Anyway, uh, um, Mother Miriam, who is the mother superior of an order that um, resides in the um, Diocese of Albany, they're a, a diocese within the Episcopal Church. They're trying very hard, God bless them, to be faithful to the truth and yet remain in the Episcopal Church. Now, I think we're beyond that point. Okay, as I was giving a talk once and someone raised their hand and said, Father, I have a question. You know, some people say that 
um, you know, you have to, you know, bring change from within. But others say, yeah, but there's a, a, a line in the sand. And it was when, you know, they ordained women. No, it wasn't then, but it was when they said they could be bishops. No, it wasn't then. It was when they changed on abortion. No, it wasn't then. It was this. It was that. It's when they changed the prayer. So he said, how do you know where the line in the sand is? You know, why should we listen to you that now's the time? And, and I responded uh, to that particular question. Um, I don't know exactly where the line in the sand is, but if you are in communion with a church that can no longer affirm the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's somewhere behind you. Um, and so I disagree with the position of the Diocese of Albany, but... I don't judge them. I'm not them. I don't, you know, they have to answer to, to God. I support them and love them and pray for them and, you know, and hope that they will be successful and all that. Um, but I remember, so I saw Mother Miriam and I said, because we were both teaching at the St. Gabriel's Conference, and I said, Mother, she said, Father. And I said, um, uh, I said uh, Mother, so how's the, uh, how's the diocese doing? How's uh, Bishop Love doing? Um, I think Bishop Love sounds better when he was a priest. It was Father Love. <laughs> so anyway, um, I said, how's the diocese doing? How's the bishop doing? And she said, oh, we're faithful, but we're keeping it under the radar, low key. Now, I didn't have the courage to say to Mother Superior, um, how can you be faithful and be under the radar and low key? Are, are those, is that pot? Maybe under the radar, like, like maybe if you're in China, you're being faithful and you're handing out Bibles, you're trying to stay under the radar. But low key, I don't, I don't know in this circumstance that that applies, you, you know, to be faithful and yet just not make any waves in order to protect the, the diocese, you know. Um, so that, that's uh, my opinion. So here, this one says, no, you most, must both privately and openly call upon them um, and encourage others to do the same. Okay, So um, you must always hold to that. Here's from the exhortation to the priest being ordained. The bishop says to him, For as much then as your office is both of so great excellency and of so great difficulty, in other words, it's excellent because it, it is the priesthood of Christ, but it's also very difficult because you're not him. <laughs> you're not Christ. You're an icon of Christ, but you're not Christ. You're immortal. You're sinful. So for as much, for as much then as your office is both of so great, an, uh, uh, so great excellency and of so great difficulty, ye see with how great care and study ye ought to apply yourself as well to show yourself dutiful and thankful unto the Lord who hath placed you in so high a dignity. Now, the dignity is not the person. The dignity is the office, the ministry. Also, as also to beware that neither you yourself offend nor be occasion that others offend. Howbeit ye cannot have a mind and will thereto of yourself. For that will and ability is given of God alone. Therefore ye ought and have need to pray earnestly for his Holy Spirit. So in other words, don't rely on your own strength and your own will to get you through. Okay. And seeing that ye cannot by any other means 
compass the doing of so weighty a work pertaining to the salvation of man, but with doctrine and exhortation taken out of the Holy Scriptures and with a life agreeable to the same. So you have to be grounded in the Bible. So, you, you know, you, you have to become a living testament to the Word of God. Okay? So you see how important uh, it is. Um, and for this selfsame cause, how ye ought to forsake and set aside as much as ye may all worldly cares and studies. In other words, if I'm like, oh, it's 10 o'clock, I'm so tired, oh, I should read the Bible, I haven't read the Bible today, maybe say Compline, or I could watch Special Victim, Jimmy. Right, you know, no, if I haven't read the scriptures, then there's, there's no special victims in it. Okay. Um, anyway, because we're running out of time, I'm going to have to skip. But then at, at the end, the bishop says to him, um, Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain all doctrine required as necessary for eternal salvation in the same thing? In other words, every deacon, priest, and bishop, when they are being ordained, has to take the vow. So Bishop Harvey has taken it three times now that he will uphold the primacy and authority of the Bible as God's word and that while we hold the Catholic faith, we will hold to the Bible Catholic faith, the biblical Catholic faith, the evangelical Catholic faith, the Catholic faith and order as grounded in the Bible as God's word. And so the Bible is, is so important for us as Anglicans. And that's why I like describing ourselves as evangelical Catholics or as Bible Catholics, because that, that's clear. You have Roman Catholics. They're the Catholics that are under the authority of Rome. Okay? Um, but you also have Bible Catholics or evangelical Catholics. They're the Catholics who are under the authority of the Bible as God's Word. Well, who are they? They're the Anglicans. Okay? And, you know, notice we're not Canterbury Catholics, you know. Uh, the authority for us, we are the Catholics under the authority of the Bible as God's Word. Okay. Um, what is there no uh, ordination rate for a bishop in the Anglican service? I used to know that. I think they thought it was too too difficult for them to come up with or to agree on or, or something like that. I forget the exact answer now. I don't know. It was something like those who were compiling it couldn't come to real agreement on, on, some, on some of the issues, so they, they didn't do it. And I guess they also figured that in practice, um, that if a priest, because it was originally writ, written to be... Um, the 1979 Book of Common Prayer in traditional language. Uh, and so the idea would be that any bishop being ordained by the presiding bishop would probably just use the 79 Book of Common Prayer. You know, I guess. So um, We're going to end a little bit early today, but I'm going to read from... Um, this is written... Um, by Thomas Cramner, who was the first um, Archbishop of Canterbury um, at the time of the English Reformation. To see, uh, just to articulate, uh, in th this book is mentioned by the 39 Articles. And so I want to read to you 
the importance of Scripture, again, in the Anglican tradition. So this is Thomas Cramner. So this is uh, an English reformer, okay? And he writes, if you can follow the language back then, Unto a Christian man, there can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than, what do you think? Than the knowledge of Holy Scripture. So, unto a Christian man, there can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than the knowledge of Holy Scripture. And how many bishops, priests, and deacons, let alone laity, don't even read Holy Scripture every day or meditate upon God's Word or come in and, and lay themselves before the presence of the Lord and meditate on His Word? For as much as in it is contained God's true Word, setting forth His glory and also man's duty. And there is no truth nor doctrine necessary for our justification and everlasting salvation, but that is or may be drawn out of that fountain and well of truth. So there's, there's nothing that you must believe as a Christian um, that isn't biblical. Okay? Um, it's not what the Pope says, not what your priest says, not what some bishop says or what some convention says. Uh, the scriptures are, are, provide everything that is necessary for, for us to, to believe. Therefore, as many as be desirous to enter into the right and perfect way unto God must apply their minds to know Holy Scripture. So if you want to know God, know His Word. Without the which, there can ni- they can neither sufficiently... I'm going to associate you with the word expert and sufficient. <laughs> per- the word pervene means expert. And actually, in the, in the Greek, it's expert in sufficiency. <laughs> so, <laughs> sufficiently expert. Yeah, that's it. And necessary. And necessary. Okay. Um, without the which, they can neither sufficiently know God and his will. Neither their office and duty. So you can't comprehend who you are as a Christian, let alone myself as a priest, unless we know the word of God, unless the word of God is written in our hearts. You know, upon our minds, or on our minds, upon our lips, and in our hearts. And as drink is pleasant to them that be dry, and meat to them that be hungry, so is the reading, hearing, searching, and studying of Holy Scripture to them that be desirous to know God, or themselves, and to do His will. So you can't even know yourself apart from God's Word. And their stomachs only do loathe and abhor the heavenly knowledge and food of God's word that be so drowned in worldly vanities that they neither savor God nor any godliness. Here he's clearly talking about the vestry. (laughs) That's right. No, I I was careful how I selected that word. For that is the cause why they desire such vanities rather than the true knowledge of God as they thought, as they, I'm sorry, as they that are sick of an A-G-U-E? A-G-U? Fever. Fever. Thank you, Dr. Nurse. (laughs) Okay. And how do you say it? Ague? Ague. Is it used commonly anymore? 
When I read this at the retreat, did I say agui? <laughs> okay, okay, good. Sick of an agui. Well, <laughs> one time I, in seminary I was reading and the, the phrase was the wiles of the devil and I said the willies of the devil. <laughs> You're going to have to go back to the beginning of this sentence. I'm lost. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. For that is the cause why they desire such vanities rather than the true knowledge of God. As they that are sick of an agu, whatsoever they eat or drink, though it be never so pleasant, yet it is as bitter to them as wormwood, not for the bitterness of the meat, but for the corrupt and bitter humor that is in their own tongue and mouth. Even so is the sweetness of God's word bitter, not of itself, but only unto them that have their minds corrupted, with long custom of sin and love of this world. This is very similar to our doctrine based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 of the sacrament. You receive the sacrament of Christ's body and blood, but if you receive it unworthily, you receive it to your detriment, your condemnation, your judgment according to the word of God. Therefore, forsaking the corrupt judgment of fleshly men, which care not for their carcass, let us reverently hear and read Holy Scripture. I'm going to read this tomorrow, I think. <laughs> you care for your carcass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It gives me agui. <laughs> All right. Um, let us reverently hear and read Holy Scripture, which is the food of the soul. Let us diligently search for the well of life in the books of the New and Old Testament and not run to the stinking puddles of men's traditions devised by man's imagination for our justification and salvation. What is he saying? Those things that are outside of the scripture that are being required for man's justification, like indulgences and earning your way, merit and, and all of that. For in Holy Scripture is fully contained what we ought to do and what to ensue, what to believe, what to love, and what to look for at God's hands at length. In those books we shall find the Father, from whom the Son, by whom, and the Holy Ghost, in whom all things have their being and con conservation. And these three persons to be one God and one substance. In these books we may learn to know ourselves, how vile and miserable we be, and also to know God, how good he is of himself, and how he communicateth his goodness unto us and to all creatures. We may learn also in these books to know God's will and pleasure, as much as for this present time is convenient for us to know. Now, he's clearly coming out and saying that for us as Anglicans, as Bible Catholics, we, what has to be first for us? Scripture. Scripture. Not only theologically, but in our personal lives, in our prayer life, in our worship, in our church. Okay, And we cannot know God or ourselves or live the life apart from the Bible as God's Word. Now that he's clearly established the primacy of Scripture, okay, being a good Anglican, what is he going to refer to to um, uh, augment and support his argument? The fathers. And as the great clerk and godly preacher St. John Chrysostom saith, 
See, it's so Anglican, Scripture and now the tradition. What, this is what now, for those of you who say, well, you know, this is the Anglican way, da, da, da. There's a quote, I wish I brought the book. Um, oh, it might be over there. It is over there. You're in luck. Although we don't believe in luck. You're in grace. Ugh. Daughters of the King, it's a Elvis Presley fan club. Um, hold on here. I really thought that when I first heard of him. The Daughters of the King. Here's St. Cyril of Jerusalem, so one of the earliest church fathers, and he writes, With regard to the divine and saving mysteries of our faith, let it be known that no doctrine may be taught without the backing of the divine scripture. For our saving faith derives its force not from capricious reasoning, but from what may be proved out of the Bible. Okay, so a lot of people say, well, you know, that's, that's, that's Thomas Cramner, that's John Jewell, that's Richard Hooker. No, that was their attempts to return us to the place that Scripture held in the mind and heart of the fathers of the church, okay? Um, and so that's St. Cyril there. Here um, he's quoting John Chrysostom, and then after this I'll take any final comments or, or, or questions, and then that will be, uh, will be done. So quoting John Chrysostom, he says, Whatsoever is required to salvation of man... Now, this is John Chrysostom, who, who is considered by many to be the premier father uh, and certainly the greatest uh, preacher and expositor of Holy Scripture okay, in the, in the church. Okay? Whatsoever is required to salvation of man is fully contained in the Scripture of God. He that is ignorant may there learn and have knowledge. He that is hard-headed... And an obstinate sinner, we all know a few of those obstinate sinners, <laughs> shall there find eternal torments prepared of God's justice to make him afraid and to mollify him. He that is oppressed with misery in this world shall there find relief in the promises of eternal life to his great consolation and comfort. He that is wounded by the devil unto death shall find there medicine whereby he may be restored again unto health. Whatsoever is required to salvation of man is fully contained in the scripture of God. Um, and so that is the Anglican way because it is the patristic way. It is the patristic way. Um, and it's the patristic way because of the place and authority that they gave Holy Scripture uh, in the church as establishing that which is truly apostolic. So, the formularies are the 39 Articles of Religion, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, the 1662 Ordinal, including the preface, and then some have added um, the, um, that's right, the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Thank you, I was testing you, you did very well. Um, um, and... Uh, each of them clearly put Holy Scripture first. 
uh, and uh, whether it be the vows being taken by a bishop, priest, or deacon to be, uh, whether it be the quadrilateral in our ecumenical dialogue with uh, other Christians, uh, whether it be the 39 articles of religion trying to establish the parameters uh, of uh, English Christians in that era, um, whatever it be, uh, the prayer book, it clearly points to the primacy and authority of Scripture, as did the great fathers of the church.